0: Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Greetings from Carlisle, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Colonel Buck Habrechter, a faculty member here in the Department of Command, Leadership, and Management, and part of the editorial team for the War Room. I'm joined today by Dr. Tom Galvin, also a member of the Department of Command Leadership and Management. He is the Assistant Professor for Leadership Studies, and additionally, Tom has been named the Director of the Driving Change and Innovation Area of Concentration that the school has developed. While on active duty, Tom spent over 10 years of his time working in Commanders Action Groups, or CAGs, so he's well-versed with the concept of change in large organizations. Welcome, Tom. It's great to have you in the studio today.
1: (laughs) Thanks very much, Buck.
0: So let me just start off right off the bat. What, what got you into this area of leading change?
1: Well, it's uh, kind of ironic is that uh, I was exposed to a considerable amount of, of uh, change scenarios, change stories, uh, as part of my commander's action group duties. I was a special projects officer and speechwriter, and so just about anything that the commander wanted to do to change the organization and to change the environment, I was uh, somehow involved in. But this was before I started a doctoral program in organizational studies. So then, as I started my doctoral program, I took a particularly a particular interest in thinking back on the change projects I was involved in and wondering why did the ones that I were involved in some of them succeeded and others failed. And the failures, of course, are are, are kind of interesting. Uh, one in particular I like to uh, just highlight real briefly to give you an idea. Uh, we had. Uh, Remember Task Force Hawk, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I was in a uh, major army command after Task Force Hawk, after the a- immediate aftermath of Task Force Hawk, when the army was deciding, okay, what was it going to do? And uh, the issue with Task Force Hawk was that uh, the army was uh, demonstrated to be too slow, unable to respond. There were a considerable amount of criticisms about the army's ability to move from where it was stationed to a uh, an out of area operation, as it was uh, as it was called. Um, we can debate the merits of all of the criticisms, but there definitely were some harsh lessons learned. Well, I was uh, part of part of one of the commands who uh, decided to take some initiative and try to move things forward, and uh, and unfortunately, it didn't work out very well. The commander did not take. Uh, personal stock in the change effort and basically delegated responsibility to the chief of staff. And the chief of staff was uh, was having a lot of difficulty getting the directors to come on board. So the first meeting that I sat in on, and we're going to uh, come up with this strategic plan, the chief of staff begins laying out his guidance, expressing what the commander wanted. And then all of the directors around the room are just starting to ask the obvious questions, you know, okay, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? What's going on? Um, How is this going to impact me? Fast forward three months and we have another quarterly IPR and the scenario repeats guidance laid out. By the way, we haven't made any progress guidance laid out. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? How's this going to affect me? I'm not doing a darn, you know, subtly hinting, we're not going to do a darn thing until somebody actually tells us to do something. Mm-hmm. Six months later, <laughs> you can fill in the rest of the blanks. I could spend a whole podcast doing this and we don't want to do that. But basically, the chief of staff's last act was to sign the strategic plan before he leaves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How do you think that worked?
0: I'm guessing not too well. <clears throat>
1: Well, next chief of staff comes in. He didn't even know that this thing. Well, maybe he knew, but it, the point being that uh, that was that, that was about as classic a case of slow rolling that I have ever seen in uh, in the plant. In, and this was in a headquarters that recognized it needed to change. But the reason why that particular case failed, you know, was more than just the commander's the commander's lack of direct involvement it was also a lack of understanding in terms of what really needed to happen. There was no change story. It was just, we need to change. We need to change from what we were, but we have to put effort to figure out what we're going to be. The vision wasn't clear. So uh, as I started to take, take a step back and think about, how do I teach in, you know, senior leaders, here at the War College, for example, how do I teach on incoming colonels how to uh, take a, a basically enter a change situation and understand it better and try to figure out what's broke here? Why is why are we not fixing the organization the way we should be? Do we not understand what's broke with the organization in the first place? Do we not understand what the vision is? I mean, we're trying to. What I'm trying to do is to fill the uh, the students' uh, toolkit with some ideas, some questions, some things to explore so that they can make a difference and bring about positive change so we're not wasting a lot of effort and time.
0: So it's a, an issue of fate that you arrived here at the War College since so much of our curriculum is based on the idea of organizational change in large, complex organizations.
1: Right. And, and that's one of the things that I should bring up is that uh, you know, the strategic leadership course that we teach here has a, a block devoted to change. We find segments of uh, change and managing change uh, in Army doctrine. There's a, there is actually a paragraph or a section that's devoted to how do you actually do, do change. And it's based, of, it's based on a very common, very well understood eight-step model from uh, John Carter that, uh, that is, is used in just about every setting, corporate, public sector, what have you. So part of the things that I tried to understand was what, what was missing, or what was what was being overlooked. Because, okay, the first step is we have to establish a sense of urgency. Now that's all well and good, but then the question, as I turn to the students, is, well, how do what's the step that leads to figuring out what's urgent? I mean, how do you actually build the sense of urgency in the first place? Mm-hmm. And part of the problem is is uh, the the students' experience from the course of which I've teach uh, I've taught is that it uh, relies on alarmism. The sky is falling. Everything is going to go to pot, and we've got to do something.
0: And surely, if you set a suspense, everyone will realize the urgency associated with it.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, the suspense itself is the only set of urgency that anybody realizes. But, but what that encourages, of course, is a new and interesting form of slow rolling. Okay, we'll we just fill out these slides, hand as to the commander. We'll all stand there and take a, take a beating, and then we'll go on to all these other more important things over here. So the thing that um, I, I came to uncover, and again, I, I looked at both successes and failures, is that the change story is something that has to be really well constructed. Mm-hmm. And, and what I emphasize is the word story. When, uh, when you look at uh, typical change management literature, what they focus on is sort of like the, the beginning and the end, you know, the beginning and the end of the situation. So what, what situation you're in now is broke, and the end, which is the, uh, the vision, however it's expressed, mm-hmm. some sense of what the future lies, and then you're supposed to be able to construct the path in between. That's not a complete story. Now, what... Now,
0: now when you say you're supposed to be able to construct the path in between, you're speaking of the, the, the worker beast, the organization itself the that's organization supposed to figure itself. it
1: out. Well, it's not just the organization itself. It's also the leadership. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, with the path in between, what is that? That's the plan. Right. That's the plan. The plan determines who's going to do what, how are you going to coordinate the mechanisms, and how are you going to understand what progress is, and, by the way, also, how are you going to measure progress, which uh, a lot of times winds up being quantitative and uh, easy, easily grasped and tangible, but actually may not have very much to do with achievement of the vision. So you end up measuring what you can measure, and you do a lot of busy work, but don't necessarily go as far as you think mm-hmm. but the change story if if you want to if you want to understand it and i took by the way i took fiction writing classes okay so my i come across the uh, come my approach to this is a little bit different perhaps than your typical organizational studies uh, person so the the key the thing that makes it a story is is choice okay what they tell you in a fiction class is that a good book puts tension on every single page. That's what captures your attention. And so what you have to do is, is put the story at the point of tension. And the point of tension is the choice in front of the organization. This is an inflection point, the fork in the road, of which let's just say that the organization, in most cases, the organization is already going down one path, already heading in one direction which is going to lead to something that is worse than the current state mm-hmm. that's what i call the undesired future state okay okay and so then the choice is the presence of an alternative which is the preferred alternative but the uh, but the key is in order to make this compelling in order to in in put the sense of urgency in this has to be a a com- it is. It, it has to really drive tension in the mind of the leader that if I don't act now, then I'm going to be stuck down the path to the undesired future state. Okay? So the tension in the choice is what makes it compelling. And, of course, going down the right path is going to produce the desired future state. Right. So now you've got undesired and you've got desired. So part of the problem is, is that if, if you rely on alarmism to express the undesired future state, who's going to believe it? Mm -hmm. Who's going to believe that there's really much of a choice there? There, you know, once you've, once your undesired future state, once the bad part of the story is dismissed, then the, uh, the alternative doesn't feel like much of an alternative. It's like, no, that's, what you're saying is going to happen is not going to happen. Let's just keep on the current path. Right. The alternative is probably worse, okay? So instead now, what you've got to do is to try to construct the undesired future state so that it is a rational, bad outcome okay. of what you have, of what, of what the current state is. That there is a logic that says that if we stay down this path, here's what is going to happen just rationally you okay know, don't don't laden it with emotion now you can laden the end state with emotion if certainly if it's unacceptable it ought to be convincing that it's unacceptable but let's keep the alarmism out of it and then then of course you use the same language you know the same factors that are going to go bad on the in in the current option you then present how the good alternative is going to lead us lead to better okay alternatives so a key is is that if you if your current state you have certain factors that you have described as being un, unsatisfactory those are the same factors that should appear in both of the outcomes you know one with them getting worse one with them getting better right so that there's alignment because otherwise if you if you say that or Or, if you couch the uh, the negative outcome completely differently from the positive outcome, then people are not going to understand the choice in front of them, okay? They're not going to understand why we have to make this choice. Mm-hmm. It's why why your choice? Why not some other alternative? or why don't we just modify the path that we're on or other things? So once you can get those elements together, it's a little bit easier to express the urgency. Because then people can be convinced that going down the current path is going to lead us the wrong way, and we must consider a, a viable, feasible, suitable alternative.
0: So in my simple mind, uh, as, you're, as you're describing this, I mean, you're talking a path and using these terms. I, I envision coming to a fork in a road, and a fork to the right takes you into the dark forest, which is the bad outcome that you don't want to be on. The fork to the left takes you to the, the bright and shiny meadow. Mm-hmm. What, what gets you, Once you've decided to take that path, what is it that maintains that urgency in that process, going down the the good path towards the the shiny meadow?
1: And that's a that's a very good question because this gets into a, an important difference between change and transition. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, transition is the emotional state. Now, uh, transition undergoes phases unto its own, in which. Now, when we say that we'd start going down the path, now we're we've moved to. We've made the choice, and we're going to. We, we've got a plan in place, right? And we are following the plan, right? Now, the first t- step that you go down the plan, it's going to necessarily involve breaking from the past, okay? Before the future is constructed, you see mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. So you've got to stop some habits, but the the new habits or the new way of doing business may not have necessarily cooked in yet. There's uncertainty. There's there's always a lot of discovery learning in this. And every step you're taking forward down the path, you're looking behind you at the green, at the green meadow you just left. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it is that that uh, oh, those old ways suddenly look a little bit better. Maybe this because this is scary, and then you know, and there's all sorts of literature out there, uh, transition literature that talks about this scary middle phase in which you. Th- you you see the vision in front of you, but all of a sudden the rocks and the barriers in the past start to appear. Mm -hmm. And you are having more and more difficulty letting go of the past until you can really see the future, you know, the the future come into focus and the barriers start overcoming and the new ways of doing business start to make a little bit more sense. Mm -hmm. So a real challenge there is you have to have... um, you have to have champions, and you have to have leadership involvement. I mean, invariably, the the change efforts that were more successful had greater leadership involvement. From the commander, through the leadership team, to the director level, There was a, it's, there was unity within the leadership team. The less unity there was, the greater chance that there were those bumps in the road. And the members of the organization... Uh, We're probably more likely to question the commitment of the leadership to the path, which, again, you know, it's not just a matter of, say, going back, but it's also you also don't if you're going down a particular path, you don't want new weird workarounds to start popping up that relieve the pain on the members, but then ultimately become dysfunctional and divert your attention from the from the vision.
0: Right. So these are the drivers of the wagon train that just keep pushing them on as, as they break wheels and and keep hitting ruts in the road that just keep them heading down that focused down that path towards the, the shiny meadow. Absolutely, the new shiny meadow. That's right. You mentioned uh, you mentioned literature, a lot of literature about transformation, a lot of literature about change. I, I'm going to presume that not a lot of it necessarily was written written by anybody in the DoD, and the majority of it's outside from what we would probably consider business practices. Um. You know, we get a lot of pushback a lot of times from students as they come in because we do introduce different types of business models and things like that. And the question always is, what does this have to do with us? What's the relationship and how does that work? What's the context that we're talking about when we're talking about change in the military?
1: Yeah, and that's a, that's an excellent question. And I received that uh, pushback as well. Uh, first off, uh, there's actually a lot less difference between a private sector organization and a public sector organization of which the military is. Mm-hmm. There's also not that much difference between, say, a professional organization, which the military is, and a non-professional organization, such as a commercial sector. But if you recognize what the differences are, they can be very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in the public sector, what's what's the measure of success? I mean, excuse me, in the private sector, what is the measure of success? How are you measuring how are, how are corporations measuring each other? Profit margin. Profit margin, okay. And so the basic unit of analysis is the dollar. Mm-hmm. What's the unit of an, basic unit of analysis in a public sector organization? Uh, efficiency. Program. Okay. The program, okay. Now, efficiency is measured by the program. So the idea of the program is, is that you, you, uh, your legislature – assigns resources and authorities together in a block and and the euphemism we like to use is the color of the money Mm -hmm. okay so your efficiency is therefore defined as how much of that money is spent to achieve the designated purpose for the legislature giving you the money okay okay it's a different thought process but it is still a thought process So in a military context, when we talk about efficiency, we have to couch the meaning of efficiency and how we measure efficiency according to programs as opposed to raw dollars. Okay. Okay. Because ultimately, if the raw dollars change, that also incurs a transaction cost from one program to another. Right. Now, that doesn't make it any more or less complex or anything. It's just a thing. But when you go through and think about the, the uh, what most of your organization theories look at, uh, they're basically looking at the same thing. You know, you're basically saying you've got to diagnose what's wrong with the organization. You have to figure out what the plan is. You have to execute the plan. The only you know the only difference is. How are you measuring things along the way? Mm-hmm. But the process of following what the literature says are good ideas about change is the same between the two. So that's that's one example. In the professionalism side, professional organizations uh, put a lot of stock in their effectiveness. And in the ability to sustain its domain of expert knowledge is paramount. It's the same thing. It's just... It's different from the corporate, corporate organization, but the fact that you have to do that as part of what you do as your mission is just a factor in the context. What you do in order to make a change effort work is still actually the same. And the professional side, professionalism side, it's about identity. It's about sustainment of knowledge. And it's, uh, it's about effectiveness, effectiveness being paramount, Okay. Public sector professional, of course, as we know from uh, Don Snyder's work, can come into conflict.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that is one of the many ways in which change in military organizations becomes hard. So you have to synthesize the efficiency requirements of being a public sector organization and the effectiveness requirements of a professional organization. Okay. And that synthesis becomes the tension. That drives your change story. So then, you know, when you start explaining about how, uh, how we're going to get from here to the vision, and it's something that's touching on that particular tension, then what ends up happening is that if you're going down the path and you think that what your change effort's doing is going to make it much more difficult for you to garner the necessary resources and authorities, then... That becomes a significant focus for the leadership to try to ensure that that doesn't become a derailer. Same as if you're going down a path that threatens your ability to be an effective fighting force Mm -hmm. while satisfying your public sector stakeholders, then the leadership has to get involved and ensure that that does not become a derailer.
0: Uh, so we've we've highlighted that uh, there's a number of different uh, change programs, change models out there that exist in, both in the corporate world and, and some discussions in the military. Wh- which ones don't apply well and why is that to, to military change, the, the changes we face specifically in the DOD?
1: Well, I'll tell you one, that uh, if you look at the change management, uh, the popular change management literature out there, the thing that they uh, – I disagree with the way that they treat resistance. The typical way of doing so is to treat resistance and the resistors like a bug to be squashed. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, resistance is bad. Get you know steamroll them is, is sort of the message, which I find uh, not only do I find wrong, uh, but uh, there's there's a significant body of literature that's come up in the past 10 to 15 years that has really taken a much more nuanced look at resistance. And the operative term now is ambivalence. And you can think about, you know, ambivalence as actually being a good thing because it recognizes in, in organizations as large as the military, where you're talking about, you know, more than a million people, you're going to have complexity. You're going to have competing views. You're going to have competing priorities. You're going to have challenges in taking a single vision statement applicable across an entire service and convince everybody in the organization that that is the correct vision because everybody is going to have different opinions as far as uh, what the vision means to them. So ambivalence is being studied as sort of gradations of and different types of misunderstandings, misperceptions, differences of opinion, differences of commitment mm-hmm. of organizational members. And I would say that the more that we attune senior leaders to that because I I would just say as a blanket statement there is no such thing as a real strategic change effort that avoids criticism that avoids controversy. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen. I mean that's the nature of a wicked problem and at the senior levels we're trying to we're trying to Guide an entire service through a wicked problem, a wicked internal problem. So rather than treat it as something to be squashed, it's got to be something to be understood. It's information and learning that needs to take place so that the plan can be made more feasible, more suitable, and ultimately more acceptable. But totality. You know, just don't count on it. It won't happen.
0: So, is the goal to uh, to turn that ambivalence in the people and the resistance that you run into, or is the goal simply to educate them, and make sure they understand they're a part of the process, and their their concerns are heard? Both. Okay.
1: Both. And it'll depend on the context. Mm-hmm. You know, some some cases are going to require steamrolling. Let's face it. If you have an organizational problem like the sexual harassment and assault. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not very much room for ambivalence. Yeah. Okay? You, you know, there's, there may be some disagreements about how or what you do, and there's certainly, you know, there's certainly a lot of discussion associated with it, but ultimately the desired future state is pretty well set. Right. And everybody, you know, everybody is working to march toward that goal. And you figure things out along the way. Mm-hmm. That's very common. You know, whenever you talk about just about anything in the human resource management area, you're probably going to run into, you know, probably have to deal with that because people are complex.
0: And, and that is often one of the greatest points of resistance as we talk about business models and things that quite often the answer is is to remove the resistance. Fire those people that are on, are on board with the program. And we know in the military that's not necessarily a feasible solution. And you're, you're, you're discussing that exactly in terms of how you have to address that. So it's a, a, a great way to think about that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in support of uh, the elective that you've done for years and now this new area of concentration that is the driving change and innovation, you have developed a new primer.
1: That's correct. It's called Leading Change in Military Organizations. And it's an attempt to, uh, to take the, uh, the Leading Change course that I have and, and assemble – I don't want to call it a methodology. I want to be careful about saying that I've got a new process that's going to fix everything. hmm so what I did was I, I assembled a whole wide range of organization theories, put them into the military context, and established what I would call a more of a line of questioning. Rather than telling folks what to do, it's about how to think about a problem, because there is really no such thing as a single process that's going to be applicable across all change. Uh, there's too much differences in context, and too many differences in terms of just, you know, different uh, different organizations have different needs. So what I do is I walk them through from from a di- how do you diagnose what's wrong, how do you write a vision statement? We do a lot of literature out there that tell you what a good vision statement looks like, but very little out there that actually tells you how to write one. Mm-hmm. So we do that and uh, build the plan. And then sustain the plan. Because another thing that's uh, actually a bit missing from uh, change discussions, you know, we focus a lot about uh, how does the change agent start the change effort. But our graduates, they're going to leave here and they're going to wind up in high-level commands. And they're going to be swimming in change that already is ongoing. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to figure out how to navigate it. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of change efforts going on at various levels at Echelon across the Army much less, you know, and, and then, of course, the other services mm-hmm. and the joint community and the Department of Defense. And sometimes uh, what, this, what the graduate has to do in their first job is to figure out which ones are working, which, one, which ones are actually working, which ones are not working. How do we stop the ones that aren't working? It's actually very hard to do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It is very hard to do because chances are if uh, you have a change effort that everybody's invested in, there's, there's going to be some resistance to stopping the change. Right. And stopping change is just another form of change. I thought this was the path we were on. This is the path that led us to the perfect field. And, and, and unfortunately, that's uh, you know, one of the things we do have to contend with as an organization that has significant turnover, significant movement of personnel, is that what made sense to the previous regime, mm-hmm. the previous command and the command team, when the new command team comes in, they recognize the difference, you know, hey, the context has changed. Maybe what that path was not the right one. Mm-hmm. Maybe we need to go on a different one, which, of course, you know, is, uh, could create some additional turmoil. <laughs> and that's one of the challenges that commanders have to weigh. And we do talk about that in a whole chapter devoted to inheriting, sustaining, and terminating change.
0: So at times there may be a, a, a change process that you inherit that while it may not be the ideal path, it may be the one that you need to stick with because the 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 consequences of change again are, are greater than yes not necessarily meeting your ideal goal out there.
1: Yes. And uh and and you can't assume that you're always gonna get the entire story either. Mm-hmm. Because when you for sure if it was a change effort that was rooted in controversy in the first place what's going to be the first thing to happen when you when you land in that unit all of the folks who were silent but opposed are going to come running to you first mm-hmm. and then say we got to stop this this is a terrible idea it's happened to me uh as well i mean i I've, I've seen that uh, you you got to say all right I need the right information. What was the original problem we were trying to solve? What led us down this particular path? Mm-hmm. You got to almost reverse engineer the change effort as you go because you also can't count on thorough documentation. I mean, you know, we are busy organizations. We have to assume that nobody is going to have sufficient time to write everything down perfectly to be able to pass it on. You're only gonna get partial information. So, right. you know, it's that's, that's, that's gonna make it tough, but but it is what you have to do.
0: Gotcha. Well, Tom, I'd like to say thank you very much for joining us in the studio today. Uh, I know that your, uh, your elective has always been well attended in the past. I know it's a, a big, big part, as I said, of our curriculum as a whole, and to be able to focus down 10 lessons, and now to get even bigger with the area of concentration, I think is fantastic for the students here at the War College. I congratulate you on your new primer. I've read through it. It's a fantastic piece of work, and I do like the way you've, you've laid it out and organized it and present multiple options and models for people to consider, recognizing that there is no one single way, one one perfect path for anyone. So thank you very much for being here with us today.
1: And thank you very much. And uh, for the listeners, uh, the the primer is available on the publication's website under the Practitioner's Corner.
0: And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening.